Simple Beat, episode 69, Apple's Education Initiatives. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And as we do every episode, let's start with a little bit of follow-up. First, we're going to talk about the book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming by Richard Moss. I think we've mentioned this once or twice. It has been in, um, in a kind of a Kickstarter for books stage at Unbound. Uh, but now the book is out both in digital and real world dead trees forms. And uh, we've been both flipping through it. And I, I personally am really, really pleased with how it turned out. And there's a whole chapter on ambrosia that I skipped to <laughs> and read first and have just been devouring certain sections of this book. It's really well done. Yeah. And uh, I had gotten a digital copy was I think the level that I went to on the uh, the funding campaign and got that several weeks ago and went, yeah, this is pretty cool, but you know, it, it, it's a PDF. And I just kind of filed it away in my books folder and went on with my life. But Brian, you actually surprised me and sent me a, a hard copy version of it. And I must say that they have put in some awesome attention to detail. And it's like, it's a very cool artifact. It's a very well-produced book. And so if you were someone who was on the fence the last time that we mentioned this, or had only backed at that digital level and thought like, oh, that's good enough, I'll get the content. I have to say, I recommend it. Like the cover is all, it's like the the beige yellowed plastic of, of a Macintosh. And then instead of black print, it's purple. And the page edges are all this like deep, rich purple. And it's just a really cool looking book uh, to put on your coffee table or on your shelf. It will stand out. Uh, so definitely a cool addition to my retro Mac collection. One other piece of follow-up that we had in here since uh, last episode, uh, we tweeted about this recently, was that we heard news that AmbrosiaSW.com had completely shut down. And uh, we were very sad, tweeted about it. A lot of people uh pouring one out for Ambrosia software. Apparently they were they were dead. And then when we first went to prepare this episode, I opened up the document that Brian had created. And in the follow-up section, we had ripambrosiasw.com with a strike through through it. <laughs> and so I immediately typed the URL into my browser and they're back, false alarm. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what happened over there. Maybe uh, you know a server shut down or their DNS went weird or Hector D. Bird pulled out a power cable or something. Um, but false alarm there. So if you were following us on, on Twitter and, and we're sad for the apparent demise of Ambrosia, they are still around. I was particularly taken by one of the tweets that said, how am I going to get my Escape Velocity serials now? Like Captain Hector is always going to come after me. But I just thought when I was a kid, at least playing through Escape Velocity, like as it was released, there were other ways of getting serials. <laughs> I won't say what they were. <laughs> okay, so I think that's all we had for follow up this episode. So let's get on to our topic. And this is uh, topical as we're recording. So today, as we're recording, or earlier in the week, perhaps, as, as you're listening to this episode, Apple had a big event in Chicago that was an education-focused event. That was the entire purpose of it. Lots of people got worked up, hoping that there would be lots of other products released, but that was not to be. They introduced uh, some new iPads at their entry-level price point. They talked about new features in iOS, like ClassKit new features in iWork and some other apps of theirs, uh, and new pencil and crayon support. 
in uh, in the various devices. Um, that's all we'll say about it here, because if you're listening to this uh, episode shortly after it's released, you probably have one to 20 hours of other coverage of this event in your podcast app. But we just wanted to set that as the context that we're looking at this topic of Apple's investment in education and the products and initiatives and programs that they've put together around uh, education, leading up to these things like the classroom features for iPad, Swift Playgrounds, and all of this iPad-first iOS-in-the-classroom stuff that we're seeing today. And one of the things that they uh, did in the event is they kicked it off by saying, like, we have a long heritage of doing this, and we're going to look into some of those things. And I do say some of those things on purpose. Like, this is a 40-year piece of Apple's business, right? Like, I think that it's pretty clear that we'll see that whole teams of people have been dedicated to education initiatives for Apple for decades. And so we're only going to touch upon a few of the things here. And of course, the perspective that we have here, especially for some of the earliest stuff, is that we saw these education initiatives as students, sometimes as very young students, like, you know, first, second grade. And so there are definitely many other perspectives, especially for people who were educators and teachers back when we were kids. So we're going to miss a whole lot of things. And if there's something that you think is really important for us to cover in follow-up in another show, please get in touch with us. But just wanted to lay that out there, that this is going to be um, some of the high points and some of our favorites uh, and interesting things that we found while doing research, but by no means a comprehensive chronological tour of all things Apple education. So just as today's event may have had the, the biggest impact on uh, the broader audience with the introduction of a new piece of hardware, the updated iPad, let's start with some education-focused hardware releases from Apple as well. Right. So I said, and this is sort of through our own eyes, the the education-focused uh, hardware products that I first saw and really spent a lot of time with in sort of later elementary school was the LC line of Macintoshes. Because in our elementary school, upper elementary school, fifth and sixth grade, that was what we had a full lab setup of. Uh, and we were some of the people who helped maintain those machines. Um, I remember going in uh, over summer break and like popping open all of the pizza boxes and going in there with compressed air and it was horrifying inside. Um, but these were the type of machines that were pretty common. It was they were they were low profile, they were low cost. The LC in the name was something important for outfitting, you know. F- labs full of these. So they had probably 30, 35 of these in a single room. And that was basically what they could afford on a early 90s computing budget in in education. And even in a, you know, we were in pretty nice schools. And that was kind of, you know, very few places were dedicating even more than that. I think we had, you know, we had the lab full of Macs, we had the lab full of Apple IIs. And then each room like each teacher's room probably had either an Apple II or a Mac. So my guess is there were probably maybe a hundred computers in in the whole school, serving serving probably seven or eight hundred students. So far from a, a one-to-one program or some of the things that we think of today, uh, you know, certainly some of the things that 
Apple's pushing now like an iPad for every student, right? That just seems makes total sense. They all have their own devices. They can take them home with them. They can do all of their work. Um, but that's not the kind of situation that we were in back in the days of something like the LC, which was running on, you know, the commodity parts that would uh, that would run at ease, that would run basic word processing software. I we were using Microsoft Works, I think. So a little bit of a uh, little bit of Apple, a little bit of Microsoft in the classroom, um, and and that was pretty much what we got. They, you know, they had no CD-ROM drives. There were it was like if you're going to use some sort of high-end CD-ROM educational title, that was like going to the next level beyond like the you know the computer lab that was like that was a destination type of event at that point uh and not something that we were looking at with LC products although i think later on maybe in late middle school early high school if there was a single apple machine in a teacher's room i think a lot of them were still in the LC line but those very late model LCs that were also the same as certain performas or even uh kind of low uh, cost Power Max, where it was the the all in one that had itty bitty speakers below the kind of like a, a beige chunky iMac that had a CD drive and a and a floppy drive. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So what I was thinking of were the things like the LC, the LC two, the LC three, but then there were these LC four digit product names, and like you said, they were kind of like white label performers or something. It was a little bit, it was like where the performer was the consumer model. The LC was probably still available, you know, to the general public if you knew to order that particular model number, but it didn't come with the bundled consumer software. And so it was targeted at education as sort of a blank slate where they could, you know, then add on the various educational software packages that Apple was offering, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, and build up their system that way to have that, you know, multimedia CD-ROM driven experience. Moving on to another piece of hardware and one of the uh, pieces of Apple hardware that actually has an E in the product name to denote for education, the E-Mate. And uh, we talked a little bit about the E-Mate in our Newton focused episodes. This was a portable computer with a built-in full QWERTY keyboard, uh, but it wasn't running macOS or uh, system software, if it was that vintage, it was running the Newton OS. And it had a lot of design flair uh, to tie it in with the Newton product family, like the kind of translucent green plastic that encased it, the the green aesthetic. Um, it also came with a pen to kind of cement the, the, the Newton pen-driven operating system and UI. Uh, and in an educational context, I don't think I ever saw an e-mate, but uh, it always reminds me of a different piece of hardware that we've also talked about on this show that did show up in an education contest context, which is the AlphaSmart. It's kind of a, a very bare bones typing piece of hardware that really makes sure that you're, you're focusing on what you're typing because it really can't do much else. And when I think of the e-mate, at least in, in this weird hindsight, that's really what I think of. A, it's a machine that it has the keyboard, so it's encouraging you to type on it, and it really can't do much else. It comes from a, a PDA kind of operating system and product philosophy. I don't know if this came out since our last episode necessarily, but probably at least since the last time that we talked about the AlphaSmart. Uh, friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, got his hands on one of the later models of AlphaSmart 
and uh, put a video showcasing it on his YouTube channel. So we'll we'll link that in the show notes as well. One of the things that made the E-Mate different than the Alpha Smart, though, was certainly its price point. And uh, there's been lots of talk about uh, the fact that educators, well, not really educators, but more like school administrators who are, who are putting together their budgets and wanting to outfit a lot of devices for their classrooms are really cost conscious. And so the E-Mate was uh, selling for $800, which was you know less than some of the desktop machines that were being put into computer labs at the time, but was certainly more than the AlphaSmart that I think was probably in the, you know, I don't know, like one to three hundred dollar range because it was so so purpose built. Um, I mean, if you kind of think of other educational devices like graphing calculators or something, uh, the, the Alpha Smart was kind of the graphing calculator of word processing. Uh, really, you know, like a you know purpose built device, uh, small LCD screen uh, that really only fulfilled that one function and was in that lower lower price point where the Emate was pushing more towards being like, you know, it was a sub notebook effectively before, you know, before there were netbooks, there, there were still things that could be sort of sub notebook and it was in that area. And I actually remember the, I think the only time I've ever laid hands on an e-mate was in our elementary school because they had gotten from their education rep, uh, who was in touch with the school. They had gotten one as a loaner, like, um, here, you know, Take take this device and have it in your in your lab for two to three weeks and see what you can do with it and see if you want to order some of them. And they decided not to, I think, because they had they they had the Alpha Smarts and they were uncertain what an E-Mate could do for them. Uh it it wasn't it wasn't full-fledged enough to do sort of it, you know, to be a Mac laptop that students could take home and do all of the Mac things on. And it was way too much power and too much cost to just be a portable word processor for them to take home. They already had a solution for that. So it kind of fell in the cracks, I think, for, for our school system. That's why I saw one for all of like five minutes when I was 12 years old. And again, we don't need to go into coverage of today's announcements or today's uh, general context for Apple in education. But it's interesting that you make that point because I think a very similar point could be made for the iPad in the classroom versus something like a Chromebook, where the Chromebook, when you buy the unit, uh, no accessories, you do get a keyboard. It probably comes in a plastic case that's a little durable. And in order to get an iPad with a case, with a keyboard, uh, you're buying add-ons, certainly a pencil or a crayon. And while the iPad is certainly more powerful, more extensible than a Chromebook, for the types of things maybe the average student, especially a younger student, needs to do, it might be overkill in the same way that the E-Mate was over the AlphaSmart. Yeah, I think it's a very apt comparison. Moving on to another piece of hardware that was uh, designed and released just for the education market, it's the Power Macintosh G3 All-in-One. Uh, maybe more affectionately known as the Molar Mac. This was released in early 1998, like one or two months before the iMac came out. (laughs) And uh, it's basically the ugly education (laughs) iMac. It's an all-in-one machine with uh, a predominantly beige plastic aesthetic, but with little bits of translucent plastic creeping in on the case. Uh, It it, it hasn't given up on the floppy drive. It actually even includes a zip drive. Um, and it's still using the, the old Apple desktop bus peripherals, mice and keyboard. Uh, but 
behind all that, it's a it's an early G3 processor with a built-in CRT, an all-in-one machine, and uh, on the lower end of the the G3 scale at the time. One thing I didn't realize about the uh, the Molar Mac until I looked it up is that it only was officially offered by Apple for like six months. Oh. It was introduced in March of 98 and discontinued in September of 98. So either the iMac came around and like ate its lunch and schools were willing to pay whatever the price difference was just to get the iMac in there because it was uh, a little bit more future proof. But I don't, I don't know, maybe schools aren't thinking about that because they're thinking about all their software that's on floppies or zips. I have a feeling that Apple was just embarrassed by this design after they put out the iMac. I mean, it, it does not compare favorably. Uh, but their their next attempt at this does compare relatively favorably. I personally don't think it looks as good as a G3 iMac. But in 2002, Apple came out with the eMac. So at this point, the iMac form factor had moved on to LCD displays, flat panel displays, uh, which were more expensive, and but were hitting their price points in that you know, $1,200 to $1,300 entry level for a desktop uh, for consumers. But education still needed a, a cheaper machine, and uh, they must have had some CRTs left over from, from the iMac production, and they created a desktop machine called the eMac. This was released in early 2002, and stuck around for about three years after that, three and a half years. And it looks a lot like, I would say, the uh, Snow iMac DV, uh, but it's kind of like up on a little stand that gives it uh, a little bit more flexibility of, you know, turning it around, doing collaborative work in a in a lab type situation. And again, I, I think really just uh, using up what remaining parts there were from although it, I, I suppose it's a novel case mold, but other than that, using up a, a lot of old iMac G3 parts that were still in the production pipeline to give a good enough experience for running uh, late versions of classic Mac OS. And uh, I don't know, does it even go up to uh, early versions of OS 10? I think so, as a G4. Yeah, up through uh, Jaguar for the original one. And then. If you add a, the exact right configuration of one of the later ones, yeah, like you said, Brian, the the G4, you could get all the way up to 10.5.8. And I think the eMac may be the outlier here where it was the only product Apple first made just for uh, educational markets and where you could only buy if you had a .edu email address or were affiliated with some kind of certified school system. Then Apple later released to the general public that anyone could buy. Usually the products went in a different direction or if something was created just for the education market, it stayed there. But I think the eMac is the only one to cross over in the other direction. Yes, but we've been continuing to ask these questions today. People have been going, is this education only? Is this education only? Is is this the same product that I can buy on apple.com? What's the difference in the in the discount? Uh, it, it's definitely something that's still on people's minds. <laughs> So the eMac was Apple's last custom education offering on the desktop, and then things in schools certainly started moving over more towards outfitting schools with laptops for the ability to have students move them from room to room, move them around in a classroom, or even take them home and hopefully not destroy them. Um, And that meant that Apple was starting to outfit schools with iBooks or uh, then later on MacBooks. And 
the thing that you have to worry about when you're handling these devices is also keeping them charged. The last thing you want to do is to uh, buy a whole set of iBooks, put them on a cart, roll them into the classroom and realize that half of them are dead and that you've got like, you know, three power plugs over in the corner of the room. So to get around this problem or to solve this problem, they would build essentially charging carts. So these wheeled carts that have uh, ways to plug in the various power adapters and sort of line everything up uh, and send them around from from room to room. So there was a device uh, that was called the iBook Mobility Cart (laughs) uh, that would get these from from place to place. And the funny thing is, like I said, uh, Apple's pushing for iPads now, but is still yeah, you know, if if a school district calls them up and says we want to buy every student a MacBook, they're they're not going to turn that business down. Um, and so there's this modern equivalent that's still for sale on the Apple Store um, for three or four thousand dollars or something like that. You can get this uh, wacky charging cart that will uh, fill thirty or forty Macs at a time. Um, Apparently, I, I don't know if it charges them all at the same time. There was a segment on Connected last week that we'll link to. Uh, again, Stephen Hackett going into his experiences handling iBook carts in the past, which apparently could only charge half of the devices at a time. And this led to some troubleshooting problems. So like Ed said at the top of this episode, we're not going to go in depth into every single uh, Apple hardware model that was uh, targeted towards the education market. Because uh, in a, there were probably some models specifically made for education that we didn't get to. But even beyond that, there were lower spec versions of existing consumer computers that are priced for the education market or in kind of the way that the last year's iPhone sticks around at a lower price point. The kind of the last revision or the last year's model of certain Macs have always stuck around at lower prices for education. One of them is a uh, Pretty much the second Mac ever, the Macintosh 512K, had an education version, the Macintosh 512K E, in parentheses, Ed, for Ed Cormany or education. <laughs> I, I, I did not know that there was a Macintosh Ed until today, and uh, this makes me very happy. It was basically the low-end version of the Macintosh Plus. As the Macintosh Plus is coming out, they have some 512Ks that they want to keep selling, and uh, really the only difference according to everymac.com, was it got the new ROM as the Macintosh Plus. But the other difference, which is something I remember being very concerned with in those days, was the disk drive went from accepting 400K floppies to also 800K floppies. Not the full super drive yet, but uh, a pretty big <laughs> improvement. Yeah, your, uh, your, your good old CH floppies. Do you remember that little logo on the, on the high-density floppies? With the kind of like three-line futuristic-looking font for 1980. Right, and and so it was supposed to say HD, but the, the second bar in the H was also supposed to be the vertical bar in the D, and so everyone thought that it said CH. Yeah, I just remember so many times getting a, a floppy disk from a friend or uh, with the intent of installing software on the old family Mac 2. It only supported up to 800K floppies. And if I got the high density floppy, you would put it in the drive and it just wouldn't do anything. You'd have to bust out the paperclip, force it to eject. Ugh, frustrating. So let's move uh, on past hardware. 
to some of the software that Apple created for educational purposes. And I think one of the things that we won't talk about here is just the general educational, uh, you know, educational software ecosystem that grew up around the Apple II and the early Macintosh. Uh, some of those things, uh, we discussed in our, uh, software for kids episode that was, uh, a while ago. I think it was episode 28. And we'll link that in show notes. Um, but what we're mostly looking at here is things that Apple themselves created, not your, your Oregon trails and, and all of your other favorite games. Um, although Mech will appear at a later date, uh, in this episode. Um, so I want to, th- these are kind of in, in chronological order. Um, and I think one of the things that I remember, basically my first introduction to programming and one of the earliest first party educational titles that I could track down was the Apple implementation of the logo programming language, uh, famous for its turtle graphics package, where you basically start with, um, you basically have a turtle in the middle of the screen and a command line and you tell it to go around the screen and you can tell it to draw things and then you can switch over into a mode where you can actually write sort of full-on scripts and then execute those and watch the turtle go often flying off the edge of the screen never to come back um, because you messed up your commands. Um, But this was something that Apple definitely was touting. Uh, This was at the point with the Apple II where uh, you know, Apple Basic was included in the system. Uh, you know, ten print butts go to twenty, go to ten. <laughs> that was everybody learned their first infinite loop uh, in elementary school on on a on a Apple II, and they were also doing these other ports of, at, even at that point, historical programming languages, um, things like. Uh, there's a link to uh, Apple Education newsletter that we'll put in the show notes, uh, where they're touting bringing Fortran and some other programming language. So th- these were things that were being done by Apple as as software packages that were, you know, they were general purpose programming languages. Although nobody was writing like application code in Logo, that really was like a teaching environment. The next piece of software we want to talk about is something we have talked about uh, before on the show. It's Apple Media Tool, which was first released in June 1993, but uh, had a pretty big version 2.0 a little bit later. And uh, so Ed and I have direct experience in Apple Media Tool, and some of the time it felt like we may be the only <laughs> people who who have had direct experience with it. Uh, but Apple certainly had high hopes for Apple Media Tool. Uh, for one, there's a wonderful product page on the Internet Archive that had its own subdomain, amt.apple.com, not apple.com slash software slash amt. Uh, there's a wonderful animated GIF of a toy monkey clapping its symbols to demonstrate one of Apple Media Tools' capabilities creating a flipbook-style animation. <laughs> but at its core, Apple Media Tool was kind of like a souped-up hypercard. You could lay out different screens of a presentation or a software application visually and kind of map how one linked to the other. And of course, being Media Tool by name, it was a lot easier to incorporate uh, QuickTime movies, certainly color (laughs) overall, and uh, other forms of interactive media than HyperCard, which still as a 
default install was black and white. I think in the past we've tried to find some any kind of comprehensive information on Apple Media Tool and failed. But uh, I think maybe third time's the charm here on doing research on on AMT. And one of the reasons is we have a, a new resource. So there were these um, like Apple resource or like Apple fact sheets that got added to the Internet Archive recently. Um, and I started searching through, it was this trove of PDF fact sheets from plus or minus the year 2000. And each of these fact sheets would like detail a piece of hardware or an educational software bundle or a particular piece of software. And there was one in there on Apple Media Tool, probably one of the later versions of Apple Media Tool, I think 2.1. And it had the, it had the URL for amt.apple.com, which was like, that was the missing link, literally, um, because, you know, it's very hard to find something like that, like a subdomain or something on the Internet Archive if you don't know exactly where to look. And we had no idea where to look. And it's got this just, you know, like maybe one or two year overlap of the Internet Archive's coverage, which goes back to like 97, 98, something like that. And that got me uh got me looking a little bit more. I also found a few more articles uh in print publications that have also been put up on the internet archive about uh Apple Media Tool or AMT or the Apple Media Kit, which was a even larger bundle that it was uh sometimes sold as. And we'll link to one from Mac user from October of 1994 that pitted this as like the Apple Media Tool versus Macromedia Director uh war. Um, uh, which, which of these multimedia authoring suites should you, should you go with? Um, and in hindsight, we know which one was more successful. Um, and in longer term hindsight, they are both now obsolete, of course, but, uh, they really were pitched as, um, well, it's like Macromedia's was the, was the full multimedia programming suite. And Apple's was the the multimedia tool for the rest of us, naturally. Um, and they have some side-by-side screenshots and some comparisons of how you would uh, put together these different actions in the two applications. And so in Director, if you basically want anything to do anything other than just display a static screen, you have to just start writing like writing script code. And it looks a little bit kind of like Apple Script or HyperTalk, but you just have to go in there with no assistance and just, you know, just start writing things. Um, at least that's how the article makes it out to be. Whereas in uh, in Apple Media Tool, it's really kind of interesting. It's almost like uh, it's like if you took all of the little HyperTalk events and commands and uh then you put them put those into something that's more like a keynote or PowerPoint uh, build stages window, and you would do things that way. So you'd say like on mouse, you know, like in HyperTalk, you would say on mouse leave. Here it's like when mouse leave happens, that's like the top of the window, and then you would have all of the different actions like um, like you know hide this image, go to a different screen, start playing music, that kind of thing. Um, so it was a very different, uh, very different way of doing this kind of multimedia presentation. But it was at the point where, um, you know, the software came out in '94 and was updated for about three years. It was at the point where you could start to expect students 
to be making their own multimedia presentations. We we were doing this in uh, in ninety six, and we were kind of on the very early cutting edge of of Apple Media Tool. Then we made another project using it um, for the Martin Luther King Day celebration in our in our city, and that was in I think two thousand. Um, when it was an obsolete tool in some ways, but the most powerful software that we had and the software that we knew how to use. And certainly if you were a student in the 90s, an elementary or junior high student in the mid-90s, and you were using any of the CD-ROM interactive media software like a very cool encyclopedia or even something specifically focused on one area of studies that would show facts or let you explore facts with maybe a nice... Uh, color photo or short movie next to it. It was probably something that was distributed on CD-ROM and originally authored, likely in Macromedia Director, but could have also, if it was on a Mac, been authored in Apple Media Tool. And uh, I don't know if that was ever explicitly Apple's target market, is like people who make software to distribute for the purpose of the education market, but it was certainly very well suited for it. The other thing that I found funny when reading through this article was the price point for Apple Media Tool, which it varied from anywhere uh, from, I think, about $7.95 down, then it went down to $4.95, and they were trying to bundle it with these other these other programming applications. But the funny thing is that when we were working on these projects, um, our school had bought Apple Media Tool, probably at an educational discount, but still at the cost of several hundred dollars. And to my understanding, they bought one copy and they put it on one computer. But then we needed to uh, show our presentation on the computer that was hooked up to the projector. So we needed to put a copy there. Or the three of us who were working collaborating on this project, we wanted to be able to continue working on it at home. And we were we were doing it on zip disks uh, and passing it around. And so we just took like all of Apple Media Tool, this $800 piece of software was, I, I looked on Macintosh Garden, it's five megabytes. And so we just threw it on a zip disk so that our project worked on whatever computer we put it on. Like there's the application, there's the media files, there's our project. And we would just like take it from place to place. <laughs> and it seems so ridiculous that, you know, they paid hundreds of dollars for this one license and presumably were supposed to install it on one computer. And just because, like, we could. And there was no DRM. There was no any, you know, there were no dongles. There was no phoning home to, like, check licensing. It was just like, here, here's your copy of Apple Media Tool, kid. <laughs> you know, we think about why why was software so expensive back in the 90s? And the answer is because once you had it, you just had it. <laughs> Moving on to some software Apple created that was just designed to help educate. It was a a purely educational material, not educationally creating material. Uh, That was terrible language, but I'm going to leave it in there. (laughs) Uh, There was a brief initiative called Apple Home Learning that, as far as we can tell, put out two separate software products, Wiggleworks and Earth Explorer. And you're the proud owner of both of these, aren't you, Brian? At one point I was. I I still only have Earth Explorer, but I'm pretty sure I had both at some point. and I guess I'll just go right into my personal story. At some point around the mid-90s, uh, Apple Home Learning started in 1995 and didn't last for very long. Um, I was making dumb little things in HyperCard and putting them on an 800K floppy. And 
putting that floppy in an envelope and putting like six stamps on it and just mailing it to Apple one infinite loop. (laughs) And I did this like five or six times. And then one day out of the blue, I got a package from Apple with a signed letter from then CEO Michael Spindler that was very nice and basically encouraging me to continue doing what I was doing. And I must have mentioned Wiggleworks in whatever I had most recently sent to him because he he mentions Wiggleworks and the team working on it and included a copy of Earth Explorer for me to use, uh, done by the team who also made Wiggleworks. And uh, I still have this copy of Earth Explorer. Earth Explorer was, uh, it may have very well been made in Apple Media Tool. It was kind of a, a fun encyclopedia of different biology things or different uh, climate explorations. Like what's it like in the tundra? What's it like in a desert? What are the animals that live here? And occasionally some quizzes that you could take. I think one of their screenshots that's used in a lot of the promotional material shows a little cartoon person on a bicycle. And the quiz was like, uh, if you bike for X amount of hours, what's that the equivalent of powering a light bulb, you know, for however long and, and little things like that, just to make quote unquote learning fun. Wiggleworks, on the other hand, uh, came in two different installments. Each installment had three stories that uh, were read out loud with the words, the text, and the illustration on the screen as the stories were read to kind of help uh, early readers get on their feet with reading. So like as it was like having a story read to you, but I think you could also have it highlight each word as it was spoken out loud to really help reading comprehension. And, uh, I do think that my family had Wiggleworks at some point, but it was quickly surpassed in my family by the Living Book series, which basically did the same thing, but for books by authors you would recognize and books that you would see in the store, like uh, the popular Arthur series or um, Mercer Mayer's like, Little Critter series all had living books where uh, someone would read them out to you and they had illustrations that you could click on and make move in the background and uh, follow along word by word as the narrator read them. So I don't know how successful either of these software projects were, but I know that the Apple home learning line of software did not stick around for very long. And these these living book series, you know, this is the sort of the looks like the heyday of CD-ROM titles. Like this is like one one book on one CD-ROM for probably forty nine ninety nine or something like that. And we had a bunch too. Yeah, because looking at them. Um, some of them are on Macintosh Garden. We'll link to them in the show notes. Uh, you know, there's a, a .iso.sit file for the one, first one that I clicked on is you know 220 some megabytes, as opposed to Apple Media Tool. Yeah. So I think that wraps up where we're going to talk about some of Apple's first party educational software titles. And I I have a feeling that it's not just that uh, we graduated onto later class years and uh, then our adult lives at that point and uh, didn't see them anymore. I, I, I have the feeling that, you know, sort of post-1995, late 90s, early 2000s, that as uh, Windows 95 and Win- cheap Windows PCs stormed into the educational market, uh, Apple actually stepped back from creating first-party titles for education purposes. Uh, and with the return of Steve Jobs to the company in 97, 98, uh, Unless I'm mistaken, I don't. I don't really think that these kind of things were were being produced anymore. There were may, perhaps partnerships uh, to continue uh, 
delivering educational software on iMacs and consumer software and games and those sorts of things with third-party publishers uh, on the Mac later in the later years of the classic Mac. But this is something that Apple uh, has kind of gotten away from and only back to uh, the more, like you said, Brian, the the production tools, uh, giving giving students uh, the bicycle for the mind where they can start with something blank, uh, like a hypercard or an Apple media tool or a Swift playground, um, or, you know, something a little, uh, you know, just bootstrap their imagination and then have them fill in all the content rather than publishing these, uh, large interactive experiences themselves. And of course, uh, then later on, of course, the web swept in as well and, and took away some of those opportunities. The last category of things we want to talk about, though, are things that Apple has targeted directly at education, sort of publications and programs and things that they've done over that, like you said, 40-year, 40-plus-year span of their history to try to bring their technology into classrooms and uh, to students. Yeah, and uh, just as a way to drive that home, um, early Apple employee Chris Espinoza quote-tweeted someone uh, quoting Tim Cook at the education event, saying that education is a part of Apple and has been for 40 years. And Chris quote tweeted that and said, yeah, as I took my hand-built Apple One into Steve Headley's computer lab at Homestead High School in 1977, can confirm. <laughs> so it goes all the way back to the Apple One. The Apple One was literally being used in education. That's That's pretty awesome. Very cool. I think we and many people, even even the casual observers, even the people who were not part of that era, know that the Apple II was huge in education. Um, but it, that didn't just happen naturally, and it wasn't just uh, like a sales initiative that that got Apple IIs into classrooms. There were lots of things that Apple was doing, uh, trying to partner with schools. Um, and in the U.S., with public schools trying to partner with governments to try to get things uh, set up so that Apple hardware and Apple software would be included in schools. One of the first things that was done here that I could find is something that was called the Kids Can't Wait program. And this was something that was spearheaded by Steve Jobs directly uh, as a program to start placing Apple IIs in schools. Uh, especially schools that couldn't afford you know, the very expensive computer hardware that Apple had on on offer at the time. So the story goes that Steve Jobs actually went to Washington and directly lobbied Congress people in 1982 uh, for a law that would make it so that any computers that Apple or other technology companies gave directly to schools, they could write off as a uh, you know, charitable tax-free donation. And what happened there was that the timing didn't work out well, and uh, it was uh, like a lame duck Congress. They, you know, they had already been uh, either reelected or voted out of office, and they they weren't really big on uh, passing uh, new legislative efforts at the time, so it failed to make it on the national level. Uh, but Jobs went back to his day job <laughs> at Apple in California uh, and was in touch with the state government there. And uh, in 1982, a similar law did pass in California and Apple did start placing, uh, you know, sort of one by one, like, oh, your school could benefit by having an Apple II with the appropriate teacher 
who can make it available to select students at select times. Uh, but that would probably, you know, in 1982, that would probably be the adult's first experience with, you know, the teacher's first experience with a personal computer and certainly the student's first experience with personal computers. And so even just that very first foothold in schools was something that they thought was was very important because they were looking to educate consumers as well as just educate human beings um, by you know, giving them tools to, for learning. They also wanted people to understand what it was that the personal computer could could do for them at home, at school, and at work. This led to some other big educational successes and and some partnership deals. Uh, I said that MEC would show up here, so the, the Minnesota Educational Something Consortium. Uh, computing. Oh, of course. <laughs> the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. Uh, they had a, a deal with Apple that involved both their development of famous software titles like Oregon Trail and the placement of uh, Apple II hardware in Minnesota schools. Um, as I was trolling around the Internet Archive, I found one, just one issue of this publication called Apple Education News, number three from May 1980. There are no others of this anywhere on the Internet Archive. I figured, oh, like I found a trove of these. I'll, I'll find all, all, of, all of the issues. No, just this one. Um, it's an interesting publication. It's on like three-hole punched paper. It was sent through the mail uh, to some school. Um, and it's kind of a combination of like Apple product press releases almost. And it, like, like the programming languages, Fortran and Pilot and uh, their new printers and this sort of things, but also like these case studies with pictures of people using Apple products in classrooms and an article on page five that says 1000th Apple II in all capitals ordered on Mac statewide contract. I saw that and th that kind of stood out to me. It's like, maybe this is why people in the nineties called them Macs. Oh. <laughs> will this, will this run on Mac? <laughs> but, um, this was the point at which, you know, in, in 1980, they had gotten a thousand individual machines into schools in the state of Minnesota. So that was probably, you know, just, just a couple per building, um, and, and working, uh, you know, slowly, slowly to, to get those rolled out. So that was just the beginning of the, these programs to get Apple twos into classrooms. And then once they had a foothold in an individual school, trying to get more and more of them. So more students had opportunities to use them, uh, you know, in collaborative settings and to get, to get more time with the educational software. I always forget that the M in MEC stands for Minnesota, and it's just wonderful to think that uh, a consortium limited to one state created software that not only reached the nation when the software was actively developed and used, but like continues to be a, a cultural meme uh, is really cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's international and kind of immortal at this point. So moving on from these initiatives that may have targeted certain regions with the hope of, of going national or even global, um, comes the Apple Classrooms of Tomorrow initiative. <laughs> it has its official trademarked acronym, ACOT. It's like Epcot, but for Apple IIs. And so this takes it from let's get computers in schools, let's get computers just being used in the educational market generally to let's make effectively a one-to-one 
computer to student program and not just in the classroom at the school, but make sure that they can continue their computer aided learning at home. And this was an Apple started initiative um, that started in 1985. And there are reports about a, a trial run in a couple school districts as early as 1987. And uh, there's one from 1992. And there really are in districts all over, like um, one of the fun quotes from that Steve Jobs goes to Washington, uh, kids can't wait program is that he recognized that uh, he himself was fortunate and lucky to have been uh, raised in Silicon Valley where technology was just generally more accessible because it's, it's where it was being developed. Um, some of these pilot programs or even early ACOT uh, uh, test regions were in California. Certainly it's easier for Apple to monitor and maintain them, but there were some uh, ACOT programs in Nashville, Tennessee, and even Columbus, Ohio. I didn't realize this. Or like We were pretty close to being an ACOT. Just half a state away. But like we said at the top of the show, our school district was still pretty good to us in terms of uh, uh, buying and placing Apple computers and computers in general. And I have to imagine that part of this program was probably, you know, we talked about the, the tax deductions for donations, but I have to imagine that given the amount of research reports that came out of this program that there was probably also some like grant funding here. Um, there were definitely people who were, you know, not just, uh, not just elementary and middle and high school educators, but there were people who were doing, you know, PhD level research, you know, education research who were looking at these programs and not just for a year, but across almost a decade across, you know, a student's entire learning career to see what kind of effect this classroom of tomorrow would have on them. And uh, some of the results uh, that were summarized in a, in these reports and summarized even further in some blog posts that we'll link to are that the results were not exactly what they predicted in terms of how people would use the computers, uh, but the effect was overall positive that having the this uh one to one computer experience didn't necessarily make people smarter but it made them happier about their learning experience and and did give them some uh you know broader experience and additional skills yeah in one of these uh kind of findings from one of the runs of the acot uh one of the predicted outcomes is students would become social luddites i don't know what that was supposed to mean but it certainly meant that like whatever it means it sounds like they thought that the students would have some sort of strong or harsh reaction. And that doesn't seem to have been the case, fortunately. One of the unexpected actual outcomes from that same test period is that uh, some of the cooperative tasks of like uh, buddying on a computer uh, proved to be beneficial. So some students may have actually started to work together more, even when each of them had their own computer that they could use. Pretty fascinating. That is fascinating. It's interesting that some of those same kind of educational or psychological things are are employed with computing even to this day, you know, like organizations that do pair programming exercises, um, you know, like startups, you know, venture venture funded startups that do things like pair programming because they understand the value of having two people looking at the same screen and having to collaborate and work together together. Uh, 
you know, you can trace that back to these kind of uh, education programs that started with the very first personal computers uh, all the way up until today. It's like it's still a good idea to get multiple people in front of a computer. And another program focused on education and spearheaded by Apple was the Apple Distinguished Educator Program starting in 1994. And this was to recognize uh, K through 12 or even higher education uh, educators who are using, of course, Apple hardware and software to, uh, you know, take learning, teaching, et cetera, into the technological future. So this program still exists today. And actually, the link that we'll put in the show notes is just to today's apple.com uh, in their education section of the website that that lists this and uh, what people are doing with as they say, with iPad and Mac, um, <laughs> to make learning deeply personal for every student. Uh, but I have to imagine that uh, you know, as this program is going on, going strong, uh, as we watched the event, uh, they had uh, a bunch of teachers on stage here in 2018. And I have to imagine that maybe some of them are, are part of this program. Uh, and it's, it's kind of fascinating to think that it goes back uh, 24 years at this point. And uh, is something that even as the product lines completely uh, change and evolve, uh, the the overarching framework of a program like this can continue. So you mentioned with the classrooms of tomorrow that there was one in I think it was in Tennessee, mm-hmm. and one of the posts that we'll link to has an amazing summary video of the experience that I had not seen. This video it's an Apple produced video summarizing the experience of of the educators and. The computer teacher at this school is amazing. <laughs> yep. The way that he like waxes poetic about the Apple IIGS and the Macintosh together, like, and how they can work together and the advantages of the one and the advantages of the other, it immediately made me think of the way that people talk about iOS and macOS today. Not the like, oh, you can't get real work done on an, on an iPad kind of thing. The people who are like, well... The one device is really better for these certain tasks that I do, and the other device is really better for these other tasks that I do. But because they're part of the same ecosystem, this guy's going on, well, on the 2GS, that it can talk to the same network as the Macs so that we can collaborate and share files, And it's, but but it has software that's you know better for these things. And it's really fascinating to see that, like, wow, we're kind of at a point right now where there are these two operating systems. Apple's in transition. We don't know exactly where that's going to go. And people see distinct advantages of both of them. And in 1990, it was the exact same thing with these like in-depth education programs. And obviously, like, you know, those schools, if they carried on with an Apple education program, they didn't you know, the 2GS, that was the end of the line for the Apple IIs. Like, they weren't buying more Apple IIs. They went all Mac. And so here we are in 2018, where it's the same kind of thing, where some of the stuff that was announced here in 2018 was Mac-focused. Um, some Mac tools, especially more for the teachers. But everything for the students is iOS-focused. It's like, we're at that point where it's like, well, you know, maybe... When we we look back in a couple of years, this is this is the the point where you say, well, they're not going to buy any more Macs. They're going to buy iOS devices from here on, um, and that may seem obvious in future hindsight. But in the moment, you're like, no, we've got these two platforms, and they're both great, and we still have to keep using both of them. <laughs> That's a really good point. I did not catch that as 
I watched the video, uh, but that's, you're exactly right. I was more taken with, they interviewed one of the seventh graders who uh, was, was in this Nashville district and he, you know, he looks real cool and uh, is talking about how like, yeah, just I tell my friends like why the Mac is better. And I was like, oh, I was this kid. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, at least you weren't the teacher with his suspenders. <laughs> one last thing on the, uh, the educational initiatives. I mean, I think that that was, you know, sort of the biggest, uh, biggest program until, you know, like I said, the modern era where they have, I mean, I think it's actually called one-to-one, right? Um, if your district or school building goes all in on making sure that every student has access to their own, in this case, usually iOS device. Um, but one last thing that I wanted to mention was, you know, Apple has kept in touch with educators. They've had education reps and um, education publications sent out to uh, teachers uh, over the years. And one of the things that I remember was that this was during the Think Different campaign linked up with that. Um, And so uh, we remember the Think Different uh, TV campaign, but also the billboards and posters, the uh, black and white posters of luminaries of of history, the great thinkers, and and the rainbow apple logo being the only color, uh, and the Think Different slogan on those. There are some of those posters uh, that were only available at essentially through these education channels. And so you can go on eBay and find these kind of things. Uh, there was one where they were the smaller size posters. They were 11 by 17 inches. And they were sent in these little like laminated packs, three laminated posters um, of the same person. And then they would send like 12 of them, like three, four different people, three of three of each. Um, and they came with uh, a little little information packet that had here's to the crazy ones uh, and a letter that said, dear educator. And then they explained sort of the whole think different mantra and uh, impetus behind the program. But then it said, our intent and hope is that these posters will stimulate discussion in your classrooms, bring attention to great lives and achievements and inspire your students to fulfill their own potential. And these are uh, pretty rare collectibles at this point. Um, And I also remember um, that uh, I, I think I actually have something that's similar was that in their like monthly education newsletter at this point, they would have like a fold out section in the middle that would also be a poster. So these are the only think different posters that are designed to have creases in them, basically, um, because it was a, a quarter fold out to make like a, a four page size poster. Um, and I have one of these that the there was a Martin Luther King think different poster that was not created in any other format, but it went out, I think, around MLK Day in one of these publications. Um, and I believe somewhere, I think it's at my parents' house in a closet, I have one of these sealed in the original like uh, plastic mailer that it came in because... Um, a bunch of them came to the school and we opened them up and we realized what they were and I like squirreled one of them away. But the thing is that I can't be 100% sure that that's actually what's in there because it's sealed shut. Um, but I think I have one. Very cool. You have here in our uh, our Slack channel about this episode that it may be addressed to the mother of one of our classmates who happened to be working with us on our Apple Media Tool presentation for Martin Luther King Day. 
it all comes back around. Yeah, she was she was like on the PTO board or something, and and um, you know w- was on this list. Like, right? It wasn't exclusive to teachers, but it was all of these education affiliated people got the like what's new with with Apple. Um, and I'll link to an eBay listing uh, that has pictures of this. It's in it's in Italian for some reason. Um, and it shows how the the poster folds open, and then the reverse side um, that says "reading, writing, and something unplugged." It's got a kid. Uh, oh, it's it, it's like halves of two stories because it's it's the like center page taken out. But the one of them is like uh, it looks like kids using uh, a DV camera, probably hooked up to an iMac DV, and it says "Tacoma Schools tune into the future." They may have been a. Uh- Classroom of Tomorrow. Perhaps. Um, And they're advertising things like the airport base station and those kinds of things. But uh, Dr. King is on on the reverse side uh, with Think Different. It's it's also a a little bit of a rarity because it's, I think, the only Think Different poster that has the white Apple logo rather than the rainbow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Aside from these big programs, there are also these uh, strange little corners of uh, Apple for education that... uh, can go forgotten or uh, or kept in the closet, remembered for a long, long time. So I think that that's a perfect place for us to wrap up. Uh, like we said at the top of the show, uh, there are so many things that, that Apple has done in education, and we couldn't begin to cover all of them. So if you have some delightful little piece of Apple education history saved away in your closet and you want to share it with us, we'd be happy to tell the story on a future show in follow-up. You can get in touch with us the usual ways. Uh, We're on Twitter, at simple underscore beep. Or if you have a longer story to tell, head over to our website, and there's an email contact form there at simplebeep.com. We are also individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.